This is Radio Parallax, a slightly different perspective from a slightly different view, with topics that include matters in science, technology, history, politics, current events, and whatever we damn well please. And now the host of Radio Parallax, Douglas Everett. Every so often on this program, I think we get worn down with a lot of the negative news that's floating around. We try to take a step back and deal with things that are lighter-hearted, not necessarily rooted, in fact, generally not rooted in the headlines. Suffice it to say that our emphasis today will be on the funny. To help us do that, we have obtained three recent copies of the Uncle John's Bathroom Reader series, which was frankly a mainstay on this program a decade or so ago. We actually had Gordon Uncle John Javna himself on this program on three occasions, and he was fun every time. We do have a smattering of news items I think we'll uh, interweave into our discussion. And in our second segment today, we may pull out some, uh, some items from our archives that we did not do, but others did and did very well. We should note uh, that next week will be our annual Pledge Drive program at KDVS. Yours truly will be joining in the booth live, Guy Tortorisi, to um, see what we can do to raise some funds for a worthy cause. And you should know, dear listener, that we have obtained a sponsor to give a dollar-for-dollar grant to all contributions made during our hour of broadcasting. We certainly hope you will be able to pitch in. And our thanks go to Sheila Vavoom's sex shop for pledging to match every dollar. No, there's no such thing. But we do actually have a funder, so it's a, it's a legitimate deal. You contribute a dollar on next week's program, and it'll be matched by somebody else's dollar. There's no doubt that today's program will be even more loosely organized than we usually are. Every time we do a Pledge Drive show, we tend to look back at uh, our body of work over the past two decades and find some things that we... Uh, we're especially proud of. I thought of one such moment where we were just actually repeating a comedian's joke. I was reminded of this while driving home over the Benicia Bridge. Now, some years back, the comedian Patton Oswald pointed out that Caltrans, when they were redoing the bridge, had left a spot as you were headed north toward, um, toward Concord, coming off the bridge. They, they left a spot where the car seemingly went airborne for a second or two. I'm, I'm pretty sure that, you know, the wheels did not leave the ground, but it sure did feel like you were on a roller coaster for just a brief second or two. And man, it felt really good. Patton Oswald said, you know, they spend a lot of money at Caltrans and they do a lot of things, but this is one thing they got exactly right. Let us hope they do not go out there and remove that dip from the highway. But alas, all good things must pass. Someone at Caltrans decided we just could not have this a moment of fun while driving on the, uh, the interstate. And yes, I thought of this as I drove over the spot where formerly one did get that little airlift. And yes, I lamented its absence. And just we're going to do some free association on here, I would note there's something whose presence that I was quite disturbed by. And that would be while watching Bill Maher a couple nights ago. I was appalled to note that they're obviously using canned laughter and canned audience responses to, quote, sweeten, unquote, the program. Now, there's no doubt that Bill Maher does perform before a live audience, and he sometimes moves around the country when he does so. I know people that have attended such recordings. 
there's no doubt the audience does respond, but the audience does not respond like it does in the television program. People are not guffawing at neutral lines. It's like watching a sitcom. And it's very distracting. As a countermeasure, we had to resort to putting on these subtitles and dialing down the soundtrack. To which I just have to say, Bill, come on, man. That's phony stuff. Knock it off. I mean, I expect them to have to do this for Saturday Night Live because nothing they're doing up on the stage is particularly amusing, so they have to do something to correct that. I mean, I imagine they must do the same thing with Stephen Colbert because nothing that guy ever says is funny. I've noticed, and perhaps you have too, dear listener, that uh, David Letterman is all over YouTube these days. I think he's setting up some sort of um, site dedicated to his comedy. But if you noodle around, it won't take you long to find some comedy bits that are just absolute classics. Laugh out loud, you know, almost fall out of the chair funny stuff. I fell out of the chair. (laughs) Maybe I did too. All right, we feel like taking a deep dive into some comedy, and luckily over the years we've collected uh, quite a few items of amusement. And I'm going to pull out a couple of them right now. God, here's some jokes sent to me by listener Jilly Beanie 20 years ago. Let's start with one from Jeff Foxworthy. Foxworthy said, The problem with the designator driver program is not a desirable job, but if you ever get sucked into doing it, have some fun with it. At the end of the night, drop them off at the wrong house. One from Paula Poundstone. My mom said she learned how to swim when someone took her out in the lake and threw her off the boat. I said, Mom, they weren't trying to teach you how to swim. And our old friend Dave Barry, who said if a woman has to choose between catching a fly ball and saving an infant's life, she will choose to save the infant's life without even considering if there's a man on base. God, here's one from the very earliest days of Radio Parallax. Things you never hear a redneck say. Honey, the bonsai tree needs watering. And, you know, I thought Graceland was kind of tacky. And, did you mail my donation to Greenpeace? Again, things you you never hear a redneck say. You know, that wrestling's fake. How about no kids in the back of the pickup? That's just not safe. One I especially like. I'll have the grapefruit instead of the biscuits and gravy. And final choice among things you never hear a redneck say. Checkmate. And here's some items from the woman's perspective under the headline. Well, several different headlines. First of all, how dogs and men are the same which includes both are bad at asking questions. Also, neither does the dishes. And neither notices when you get your hair cut. On the other hand, we have how dogs are better than men, which includes dogs feel guilt after behaving badly. (laughs) Dogs express affection in public. And dogs do not feel threatened by your intelligence. And there is an area where dogs fall short. Men are actually better, including the fact that men can do math. Dogs have dog breath all the time. And men don't have to play with every other man they see when you take them around the block. May I? Why, sure. (laughs) Bouncing that off, we have a men's view about What are some great things about being a guy? How about five-day vacation? One suitcase. How about you can open your own jars? Also, same work, more pay. 
one mode all the time. And my personal favorite, you think the idea of punting that yapping ankle-nipping dog is funny. And we have some items that are allegedly from actual performance evaluations, at least according to NPR. I think we'll go with a half dozen of these, starting with, since my last report, the employee has reached rock bottom and shows signs of starting to dig. And works well when under constant supervision and cornered like a rat in a trap. And he sets low personal standards and then consistently fails to achieve them. Here's one that apparently came from the military. His men would follow him anywhere, but only out of morbid curiosity. And number five, this employee should go far. And the sooner he starts, the better. And lastly, this employee is depriving a village somewhere of an idiot. All right, there's a little bit of warm-up. Let's at this point then jump into the Uncle John's Bathroom Reader Series. I'm going to start off with uh, their edition titled Plunges into California. Looks like this one's copyright 2012. We always like the section they have on loony laws. In this case, some loony laws in California. Starting with the fact that if you live in Chico... You should note that people in Chico may throw hay into cesspools, but only if they have the proper permit. Now, here's one that must have seemed silly 11 years ago. It said, statewide, vehicles without drivers cannot exceed 60 miles per hour. That's now a reality. Speaking of cars, if you own one and you live in San Francisco, you should know that you may not use underwear to wash or dry your vehicle. Speaking of Chico, California, as we just were, we should note that according to the Uncle John's Bathroom Readers Series, Bidwell Park, not so well known outside of Chico, but should be because it is the third largest municipal park in California and the 13th largest in the United States, making it bigger than more famous outdoor areas like both Golden Gate Park and New York Central Park. I think this is a bit of a, uh, a trick item because Bidwell Park to be that size would have to extend way out into the countryside, and I, and I guess it must. And it turns out the world's largest buyer of organic hops is Chico's very own Sierra Nevada Brewing Company, which is the sixth largest brewery in the country. It's been rolling and fermenting since its founding back in 1980. It's also been a proud supporter of radio station KZFR up in Chico, and we applaud them for that. We're big advocates of uh, community-based radio stations going out and seeing if they can't secure sponsors. That's something we may have more to say about on next week's program. And I did not know that Chico's Warner Street was named for the Warner Brothers. The actual Warner Brothers, Jack, Harry, Albert, and Sam, never lived in Chico. But back in the 1930s, the studio filmed two big movies there, The Adventures of Robin Hood and Gone with the Wind. That inspired Chico to rename the north end of Ivy Street in the hopes that more big-budget movies would be filmed there. But they weren't, at least not to date. And this next item uh, begs follow-up from someone in the food sciences department at UC Davis, and hopefully someone from that department will be listening to this broadcast and can help us out. But there's a long chapter in the Uncle John's about yeasts and sourdough bread and how the two are interrelated. And I guess I'll quote from it. The book notes that if you thought sourdough was invented in San Francisco, you'd be wrong. But the city did make it famous. And here's how. They note that sourdough is the oldest type of leavened 
raised bread in the world. The ancient Egyptians first baked it about 3,500 years ago by mixing flour, water, and a little salt and then letting it sit at room temperature. Wild yeasts, which are always blowing in the air, settled, grew in the dough, and then fermented, creating the sour smell. That first batch was called the starter because it could be used for years as yeast for additional loaves of bread. Notes the article. Sourdough probably came to California with Alaska miners, many of whom kept a piece of starter with them at all times so they could always have fresh bread. As long as they added a little water and flour every other week or so, the starter would last for years. According to legend, many miners in the California gold fields kept a bit of starter in their cabins and even slept with it to keep the dough from freezing. Over the centuries, the recipe traveled the world and finally ended up in San Francisco in the 1840s. Book notes there's about 60 commercial sourdough bread bakeries in San Francisco, and one of them is the oldest continuously operating business in the city. Isidore Bodine, the son of a master baker from France, rolled into San Francisco around 1849 and opened the Bodine Bakery. He was just in time for the gold rush and the influx of single mining men who wanted someone to cook for them. The miners taught Bodine about sourdough and how to make a starter. He combined that with what he knew about French baking and created his shop's mother dough, which the Bodine Bakery claims it still uses to start every white sourdough loaf with. Many food historians uh, dispute this claim, saying it's possible the present-day starter is a direct descendant of the original batch, but more likely the original mother dough was lost long ago because it wasn't kept sterile during the early years. Either way, the Bodine Bakery laid the foundation for San Francisco's sourdough empire. The book states many people think that San Francisco sourdough is the best in the world. The city definitely has some of the best weather conditions for creating the starter. Wild yeasts are abundant and can settle in any food and cause fermentation. What San Francisco has going for it is the crucial silent partners in sourdough, lactic acid bacteria. The bacteria are crucial to creating sourdough because they excrete glucose, which the yeast feeds on, and they grow naturally in San Francisco. In fact, lactic acid bacteria are so abundant around the city that the dominant strain is even named Lactobacillus sanfranciscensis. These bacteria grow best in humid fog and temperatures between low 60s and low 80s, which matches San Francisco's weather perfectly. And some sourdough facts. So that on the average, a slice of sourdough bread contains 96 calories. Sourdough starter is about 12% alcohol, the result of fermenting the sh sugars in the yeast. And if your sourdough starter turns pink or orange, it's gone bad. And finally, California gold rush miners were nicknamed sourdoughs because so many of them carry their starter in backpacks or in pouches worn under their shins. If you've ever driven up Highway 5 and seen Mount Shasta off in the distance, and I hope you have, it's usually quite a stunningly beautiful sight, you may have caught wind up in the region about some strange goings-on. The bathroom reader was very enlightening about some of this, which I need to tell you about. To quote from the book, people believe a lot of strange things. One of the strangest happens to be a place about 75 miles south of the BRI's headquarters. They're located in Nashland, Oregon. Picturesque Mount Shasta. It's been known for its hiking, skiing, and the invisible people who live inside the mountain. Towering 14,179 feet above sea level, Mount Shasta's snow-capped peak has been surrounded by mystery and legend since indigenous people first encountered it thousands of years ago. Ever since white settlers arrived in the area in the mid-1800s, the mountain as well as the nearby town by the same name, has been the scene of some very weird sightings, including UFOs 
and mystical creatures roaming around the mountain slopes. In fact, Shasta City was one of the first centers of the New Age movement in the U.S., and it's still home to hundreds of energy readers, spiritualists, psychics, and alien seekers. Shasta's New Age movement can be traced back to 1884, when teenager Frederick Oliver from the nearby town of Wairika first visited the mountain and fell into a trance. Under the control of, quote, other forces, unquote, Oliver wrote, A Dweller on Two Planets. And to thousands of people, the book, still in print today, by the way, is not a science fiction, but source material for their beliefs. A Dweller on Two Planets tells the history of Mount Shasta, which Oliver claimed was channeled directly into his mind by an immortal creature named Phylos, whose race, the Lemurians, once lived in the Pacific Ocean continent called Mu. Like Atlantis, Mu was a lost continent that modern scientists say never existed. Lemurians, Oliver wrote, talked to each other telepathically in a language called Solara Maru. But Philo spoke English to Oliver, curiously, with an English accent. Oliver described the Lemurians as physically stunning, more than seven feet tall, with long flowing hair and lean, graceful bodies. Technologically advanced, even by today's standards, the ancient Lemurians developed water generators, anti-gravity machines, high-speed trains, and devices comparable to cellular phones and televisions. But for all their expertise, the Lemurians could not prevent the cataclysmic earthquake they knew was coming. One night, about 12,000 years ago, Mu began shaking and sinking into the sea. But the 25,000 Lemurians were ready. They all boarded tall ships bound for the uninhabited island of what is now Northern California. Once there, their engineers hollowed out Mount Shasta and constructed a subterranean city called Telos. According to Oliver slash Phylos, they chose that particular mountain because it's the earthly incarnation of the great central sun, the source of all physical and spiritual energy in the universe. And so, for 12 millennia, the Lemurians have lived peacefully inside the mountain. And it's even more complicated than that, but I don't have time to go into some of the details. At least I'm not going to take the time to go into some of the details. Uncle John, Uncle John says, good luck actually seeing a Lemurian yourself, or one of their spaceships. Few people have. That's because the Lemurians exist on a vibrational level to which humans are not physically attuned. In other words, they're invisible. Thankfully, there's dozens of books out there about the mountain's inhabitants and its spiritual energy, all of them based on Oliver's, or Phylos's, A Dweller on Two Planets. Does it say whether they invented Shasta soda? I'm quite confident that the Lemurians did not, in fact, invent Shasta cola or soda. Although it's always possible, of course, they did come up with the tagline, it has to be Shasta. That sounds very Lemurian. Doesn't it? And speaking of UFO cults, and, and I, guess, I guess we're there, the book takes a look back at the Heaven's Gate cult, which came to a head back in March of 1997. Seems like only yesterday. It's such a weird story. I think we'll take a minute to review it. Notes the book. Most of California's space cults are harmless in their eccentricities, but Heaven's Gate was an exception. After recovering from a heart attack in the early 1970s, co-founder Marshall Applewhite believed he'd survived a near-death experience, and he somehow convinced his nurse, Bonnie Nettles, the two of them should start a new religion. Their ideology combined biblical apocalyptic prophecy, 
space aliens, and alternative dimensions. And no, we have no way of knowing whether the writers of Everything, Everywhere, All at Once were in any way influenced by the Heaven's Gate space alien cult. But hey, after seeing what wound up on the big screen, I, I have my suspicions, but I digress. Traveling around the country to drum up recruits, Applewhite and Nettles fine-tuned their group's theology and settled on a name, Heaven's Gate, which was also, coincidentally, the title of a famously bad 1980 movie about life in the Old West. Nettles died of cancer in 1985, and Applewhite took over the group. He believed the earth was imminently due to be wiped clean of all life in order for God to start over. The only hope was to get off the earth by way of the approaching Hale-Bopp comet due to pass the earth in the spring of 1997. The comet said Applewhite was just a cover for a vehicle that had been sent by his extraterrestrial patrons to get the most worthy humans, i.e. members of his group, off the planet before it was destroyed. To prove their worthiness and advanced spirituality, Heaven's Gate members gave away all their things, cut off relationship with family and friends, and ended sexual activities of all kinds. Going so far as a trip to Mexico during which Applewhite and five other male members were castrated. Then the group rented a luxury house in the affluent San Diego suburb of Rancho Santa Fe. They dressed in identical athletic outfits, and they killed themselves in three groups over three days. Their poison of choice, arsenic and cyanide mixed into applesauce and washed down with phenobarbital and vodka. And before the poison took hold, just to make things certain, they put plastic bags over their heads. By the time police arrived on March 26, 1997, 39 people, including Applewhite, were dead. And no, we can't figure out how all these people were not able to see through this nut, but that's what happens when people join cults. Or at least that's what can happen when people join cults. And if you're wondering what the difference between a cult and a religion is, the standard answer from Radio Parallax is that religions are bigger. And to be honest, you don't need a whole lot of religion to form a cult. The MAGA hat crowd and the Bolsheviks are two groups that manage to avoid religious affiliations, but were cults nonetheless, in our opinion. By the way, the opinions heard on this program don't necessarily represent the opinions of anybody other than us. And sometimes just him. Yeah. Mr. Bloom pointed out before the show that he saw everything everywhere all at once and, and enjoyed it. You know, I imagine this program has generated a lot of arguments over the years among people tuning in. We kind of hope so. In fact, that's, you know, our idea is to stir the pot. And to help out when this happens, I'm going to go to our archives and pull out a comedic bit which was titled, How to Win Arguments. Let's take a detour into that. How to win arguments? Said the author, I argue well. Ask any of my remaining friends. Follow my simple advice and you too will find yourself winning arguments. First step, drink liquor. You're at a party. Some hot shot is mouthing off on the subject of the Peruvian economy, something you know nothing about. Drink some health food drink like lemonade and you'll likely hang back, afraid to display your ignorance. Instead, if you belt back five or six martinis, you'll discover you have strong views about the Peruvian economy. Furthermore, you become a wealth of information. You can then argue forcefully, perhaps upsetting chairs in the process. People will be impressed. Some may leave the room. Step two, make things up. Suppose in the Peruvian economy argument you're trying to Peru, Peruvians are underpaid. State merely that you think Peruvians are underpaid and you risk being challenged by actual data. 
strike first with the figures. Say, the average Peruvian salary is $1,752 per annum before taxes. Your citing exact figures gives you a clear edge. If your opponent asks you where you get such numbers, make that up too. Say, that comes from the Hovel Moon's classic study for the Buford Commission 1992. Didn't you read it? Note, this last should be queried in the same tone as you would use to say, you know, you left your soiled underwear in my bathhouse. Three, use meaningless but weighty sounding words and phrases. Memorize the following list. Let me put it this way. In terms of, vis-a-vis, per se, as it were, and so to speak. Now use these to transform a phrase like, Peruvians would like to order more appetizers, but they lack the money. Into, let me put it this way. In terms of appetizers, vis-a-vis Peruvians, qua Peruvians, they would prefer to order them more often, so to speak. They do not have enough money, per se. They note only a fool would challenge that statement. Finally, use snappy comebacks, even when irrelevant. An arsenal of all-purpose irrelevant phrases to fire back will be of much help if they start scoring with valid points. Some of the more valuable ones are as follows. You're begging the question. You're being defensive. That is a straw man. Do not compare apples and oranges. What parameters are you using? You know, that cuts both ways. You, for example. As Abraham Lincoln said in 1873, your opponent, Lincoln died in 1865. You, you're begging the question. You say, Liberians, like most Asiana, your opponent says, Liberia's in Africa. You then say, don't compare apples and oranges. And lastly, compare your opponent to Hitler. This is the heavy artillery, but if your opponent is obviously right and your audience is sensing that you may be spectacularly wrong, then you should bring up Hitler subtly. You say, you know, that sounds suspiciously like something Adolf Hitler might have said. Or, you sound to me like you're just quoting Hitler with a statement like that one. And be indignant when you say it. Summary, that's it. The rules are simple, but use them well and you will soon find yourself out arguing anyone. Do not try these techniques on people known to carry firearms, however. And Mr. Millen is arguing with me that we need to take a break. And I think he's right. So let's do that. You're listening to Radio Parallax. I'm Douglas Everett. That's what Hitler would say. Oh. Springtime for Hitler and Germany. 